0: If you would please open in the Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, on page 810 in the Pew Bible, if you'd open the Bible to that passage, because I definitely want you to see that what I'm about to preach did not start with me, Uh, this is a word to us from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So would you please stand? Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life-giving word. We thank you, Father, that you love us enough to tell us the truth through your Son. We pray now that the same Spirit that was at work in Jesus, that was at work in Matthew, might also be at work in us, that you would pry open our cold, resistant hearts and give us grace that we might truly hear your word, Father. Believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it for your Son Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. On July 11, 1997, an obituary appeared in the Los Angeles Times. It read, Glenn Scotty Wolf did one thing in life and did it often. He married. In his 89 years, he married 29 times, setting the world record for monogamous unions. He married teenagers and grandmothers, girls from the farm, and drug addicts. Virgins and prostitutes, preachers and thieves, taking and shedding partners, as casually as a square dancer. The uh, obituary went on exactly like that in the in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, Glenn Wolf, you might have heard his name, probably you haven't. He had about fifteen minutes of fame. Uh, in July twenty fifth, nineteen o eight, he was born. He died June tenth, nineteen ninety seven. He was apparently a Baptist minister. Go figure. Um, He resided in Blythe, California, and according to the Guinness Book of World Records, he holds the dubious distinction of having the largest number of monogamous marriages on record. His shortest marriage lasted 19 days, and his longest lasted 11 years. Five of his marriages ended with the death of a spouse, surviving his first, eighth, ninth, and 23rd wives, before being survived by his 31st wife. His longest marriage was for 11 years to his 28th wife, Christine Camacho, who was 37 years his junior. This man, Glenn Wolfe, is in a way the personification of a very modern sociological phenomenon. This idea of serial marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, The devaluing of marriage itself uh, underscores that sociological phenomenon and that is the topic a topic that you and I are all too numb to thinking about that's the very topic that Jesus is speaking about here in Matthew chapter uh, 5 verses 31 and 32 as he continues his most famous sermon the Sermon on the Mount that's what we're going to be looking at this morning If you look at verse 31 on page 810 uh, you can read the very simple words that Jesus has to say it was also said whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce verse 32 but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery Uh, a little word that's worth noting in verse 31 where it says it was also said uh, that little word also is the Greek word day, uh, and it, it indicates that this passage, verse 31 and 32, actually is very closely connected in a special way. It's the only time this uh, conjunction is used in this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount. This section is very closely connected to the section that Mark preached on last Sunday, having to do with lust generally and the idea of adultery generally. Uh, Here, Jesus is taking what he has been saying in verses 27 to 30, and he applies it in a particular way to those who are married, which has been his theme all through this section. So this is actually a, a part B, if you will, to what Jesus was preaching in the passage we read last Sunday. Uh, And Jesus refers to a a passage, he says, you've heard it said, or it was also said. Uh, And then he quotes, there's a quotation mark, uh, a set of quotation marks to indicate that he's here quoting uh, a passage from the Old Testament, or perhaps summing it up. And the passage that he is probably quoting, or or summing up, I should say, is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, which refers to this idea of a certificate of divorce, Jesus is saying that that idea of a certificate of divorce is not part of God's original plan for marriage. He's going to actually go into to have much more to say about this over in Matthew chapter 19. Flip over a few pages. I just want you to know it's here. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 19, you'll actually see the ESV editors have helpfully titled this section, Teaching About Divorce. There's uh, the better part of a chapter, about a little more than a half a chapter. About the issue of marriage and divorce. Jesus has a great deal to say about it. And you can read more about it here in Matthew 19. It is totally consistent with what he says in Matthew chapter 5. He sees that marriage. That's the real topic of discussion here. Adultery is the failure of marriage. Uh, This this is a, 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 a... Uh, rejection or a departure from God's original intention for marriage. And that's what he's actually talking about here in verse 31 and 32. He's talking about marriage and the failure of marriage, which leads, he says, to adultery. The Greek word for divorce is actually an interesting word. It's apoluo, which is a very typical Greek word. We used it in Greek 1-1. 101 that I recently took, it's a, it's a word that usually means I cast out or uh, set free. And so the Greek idea of divorce had it, within it this idea of being set free. Uh, divorce was a setting of someone free. They were free to go. In fact, the word is used in a, in, a, in a positive sense at the end of a service. At the end of the service, the people are set free. We're, we're allowed to depart. And the same Greek word is used to express both ideas. So divorce was a a way of setting someone free from a situation. Uh, If you read the passage in Deuteronomy 24, what you'll see is that what was originally intended was to protect the offended party, someone who was being divorced. It was usually almost always the wife. I think in ancient times it was always the wife. Uh, it was intended uh, to protect that person, to protect them, so that they actually had a piece of paper to explain what had happened. And so when they were set free from their divorce, set free from their marriage, rather, they had a piece of paper to explain what had happened. And so Deuteronomy 24 is actually intended to protect people in that situation so that a husband couldn't cast out his wife or throw her out of the house for no reason. Sadly, Over the centuries between the time when Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 24 was written and the time that Jesus was speaking in Matthew 5, over those centuries, the teaching of the scribes, the teaching of the religious authorities had moved further and further and further away from the original intention of Deuteronomy 24. So that by the time Jesus was teaching, what had happened was the idea of protecting the minority, protecting the offended party, usually the wife, almost always the wife, and in Jesus' day, indeed, always the wife, to those words which are written to protect her had over time lost their importance and lost their effectiveness to the point that a man could divorce his wife in Jesus' day, according to the religious authorities, for having done nothing more... Awful than burning dinner. That's literally given as an example in the instruction of some of the the rabbis at the time in in Jesus' day. They taught that if a wife burned her husband's dinner, that was grounds. That was an uncleanness. That was a failure that justified her being thrown out of the house, being set free from the marriage. Well, Jesus takes that idea as he does in Matthew 19 and he says, no. No, marriage... Is meant to be forever. Marriage is meant to be for life. It's it's a relationship that's indissoluble. It's not something that can be cast away because of a minor failure. In fact, the only reason Jesus gives, the only uh, allowance he makes for ending the marital relationship is adultery, which he's just been talking about in the previous verses which he's underscored how pervasive the spirit of adultery can be. He says that's the only excuse, that's the only grounds for divorce. And Matthew 19 only elaborates on that as he points out here, so he develops there. Well, brothers and sisters, we live in a time when when people don't want to hear that. We live in a time shaped by Glenn Scotty Wolf's and people like that. Uh, Our our own relationships can be impacted by divorce. We've all experienced today, all of us have experienced at one time or another, in one way or another, the reality of divorce. Uh, It's something that we wrestle with, that, that we've all experienced, and it brings with it all kinds of complications. And it's actually those very complications which are why divorce is such a terrible thing. The impact on individuals, the impact on families, the impact on society is enormous. I think if you look at 21st century America, what, what you'll see is the fruit of generations, generation upon generation upon generation of people who have been over time well, we've been over time so confused around marriage and so, so uh, aware of the, the infinite number of problems and the challenges. We, we've had our understanding of marriage so worn down, even in the church, that we've let go of the idea of marriage as being a relationship for life one of the reasons I'm grateful for something like the Westminster Confession. As Presbyterians, we've written down these things. We've reflected on these things over the centuries. And I think Westminster Confession, chapter 24, if you haven't read it, read it you should, because it's an anchor for us in these confusing times. The Westminster Confession summing up what Jesus and what the scriptures teach us about marriage. The Westminster Confession underscores and make it, makes it very plain where, for instance, our church stands on this issue. The very first sentence of the Westminster Confession, chapter 24, echoing Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, says, Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Marriage was ordained for mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with a holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. And then the very last section, section 4 says, marriage ought not to be with the consequent, sorry, skip further down, chapter, uh, verse, section 6 says, Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery are such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate, is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. That's section 6 of the Westminster Confession, chapter 24. Well, let me tell you, those words run counter to our culture, wouldn't you agree? The idea that, that a man and a woman who are married are meant to stay together for life, that that is God's plan in marriage that that is the way it was as Jesus himself says from the beginning Matthew chapter 20 sorry Matthew chapter 19 he underscores this is not something new this is from the beginning it's been lost it's been confused but what he's actually teaching is the correct truth of what God's word has always proclaimed and we at Metrocrest as a little part of the PCA we stand committed to that truth as unpopular as it may be at times as complicated as it may be at times, we stand committed to what Jesus says. And I pray that Metrocrest will always have the courage to speak plainly, to speak faithfully, what Jesus Christ has told us. And that's why I really meant it when I wanted you to see that what I'm explaining or trying to explain actually is what Jesus Christ himself has said. It's not up to Bill Lovell. It's not up to the session. It's not up to the PCA. This is what Jesus Christ has said. And so I want to bring that message to each one of us. It is extremely important. Uh, Years ago, when Leslie and I were getting married, when we were first talking about getting married, uh, we sought out a pastor to give us some premarital counseling. And we were blessed to find a pastor in a faithful church. And he met with us, and I think it was in our first session, uh, where he said to us, he he said this. He said, I want you, as you start out your married life together, to scratch the word divorce out of your vocabulary. Scratch it out. It is not an option for a Christian couple. Scratch it out. I don't want you to enter into your marriage with this bracket in your mind. And that was particularly important for me and Leslie because both of us come from broken families. Both of us come from families where between us, how many, how many families do we have? Ten families. Between us, our parents, divorced and remarried, divorced, remarried. Uh, We have uh, brokenness in our family tree. And so he said, it's going to be very easy for you to slip into thinking about divorce as an option. And we've been married over 30 years now. And I can tell you, there was no piece of advice that was more valuable to me and Leslie than a loving pastor who told us that divorce was not an option for us. There have been lots of challenges. You can't be married for long without bumping into the challenges. There are challenges in married life. But one of the blessings for us was that we were set free from divorce. We were set free from that obstacle, that that option in the way we approached our marriage. Marriage is for life And divorce is not really an option for us. And it was a great blessing to know that going into our marriage. Well, that's a word I give to every couple I counsel. And if you come to me for premarital counseling, it will include that advice. It is important for a Christian couple who starts out desiring to live a life that pleases the Lord to understand divorce is never part of God's perfect plan. And to take that right out of our way of thinking. I encourage you to do that. Uh, Like I said, you can't be married for long without bumping into the challenges of married life. They are very, very real. I know about that. Anybody who's married knows about that. But God's grace is infinitely bigger. God's grace is infinitely more powerful. God working through two sinners' broken lives can produce... Long-term stability. I've seen that in my own life. I've seen that in the lives of many other people. I actually know that there are people who are wrestling with these issues right now. This This is a very timely subject. How do we deal with the reality of conflict? How do we deal with the reality of communication differences? How do we deal with those things in Christ? How do we deal with them? One of our goals for this year, and we're working on this, Diane Kazire brought up the idea of a marriage conference where we get married couples together to think these things through, and I think that is extremely important for us to do, and that is a plan we have for this year. We're hoping and praying right now to be able to offer that to the congregation, an opportunity for married couples to find the strength that comes from the community of God's people, that comes from God himself through Christ, who helps us and empowers Us to tackle these things together. That's very much something your session and I want to encourage, that we want to help because we all need it. Sometimes we need it a lot and we want to provide that for one another. And so Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon, pauses to reflect on a a reality that is undeniable, the reality of, of marriage and failure and divorce. I do want to underscore that. I think that's extremely important for us to hear. Uh, I want to underscore it and highlight it. I also want to bring some pastoral notes. All right? I think it's important that we read Jesus' words in the context of relationships and in the context of reality. Um, So pastoral note number one, and this is so important. Uh, The fact is domestic abuse exists even in Christian homes. Domestic abuse is a painful reality, and a Christian community is not immune, even here at MPC. So to anyone in our church family, here in person or online, if you hear this online, whoever you are, if you are experiencing abuse of any kind, we care, and we will do all that we can to help. And there are three things we want to recommend to anybody going through that. First, if you are in danger, remove yourself immediately from that situation and find safety. That is not being unchristian. Protecting yourself is not being unchristian. Protecting your family is not being unchristian. So if that is you, know that you are free to protect yourself. And in fact, as necessary, you're free to notify the police or other appropriate authorities. That's what they're there for. God has put them in place to look after situations exactly like that. It is not unchristian to seek protection for yourself or for your family. And finally, absolutely no one cares more about those suffering abuse than Jesus does. Absolutely no one. And it says, His servants, we care too. So even though we affirm exactly what Jesus says, we also stand with those who are on the margins, those who are vulnerable, those who are being hurt. That is exactly what Deuteronomy 24 was for. And there's nothing that Jesus says that takes away from that protective function of God's community. There's nothing that Jesus says that says it's okay for one person to abuse another. It is not unchristian to seek the protection of of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Anybody has that same right and we want to protect it the rights of those who are hurt. We believe that is an impulse of the Bible itself from start to finish, and we believe it is exactly the position that Jesus takes when he deals with those who are hurting, who are being victimized by someone else. So pastoral note number one, there is no place for abuse in God's vision of marriage. Pastoral note number two, All of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is in the context of what he says at the very beginning. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And he goes on to describe the blessedness of brokenness. As a matter of fact, the way Jesus describes the beginning of this blessed life that he's preaching about is by talking about the reality of brokenness. So when we come to a topic like marriage and we're we're confronted, we're challenged with this picture of what God intends, we need to understand that what we're being given here is, is not a, a, a checklist that we have to check in order to secure God's blessing. As a matter of fact, what we find is, when we come to God in our broken relationships, and our marriages, that have issues, whether we're struggling in the past or in the present, whatever it may be, it's those very realities in which God manifests His grace and glory. See, the church is not a community of people with perfect marriages. The church is a community of people who, by the grace of God, stand in the midst of the challenges. And when we fail, when we are broken, what do we find? We don't find an angry, vengeful God looking for an excuse to blast us. We actually find a loving, merciful Savior who is working in us and through us and around us and with us and often in spite of us to accomplish in our life the transformation, the change that makes sinners like you and me a little more like Christ. And nowhere is that truer than in the most intimate human relationship of marriage. It's in the, the most, this most intimate hu- human relationship where we find God most powerfully, most wonderfully at work. Over time, he changes us. He makes us more like Jesus. We uh, made today's theme, God's faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful. In the midst of our challenges, in the midst of our hardships, in the midst of those tough moments, God is faithful. We may get it wrong. We often do. But God never gets it wrong. God is utterly, totally, completely faithful. And nowhere is that clearer than in Jesus Christ who was maimed for us. Who died for us. Who paid the penalty that we deserve. So we can bring our imperfect marriages to the Lord. We, we can be honest about them. We, we can bring them to him. We can be honest with one another when we're facing challenges. We, we want to be a place that, that understands the reality of life. And we're not about pretending. We're not about play acting. We're certainly not about uh, saying that we've got it exactly right. We're about acknowledging our need, acknowledging God's faithfulness and grace in Christ. So, I want to bring you these words. This important word from Jesus. His unambiguous support for marriage. And also the context. That is so important to have straight in our heads. We are not earning God's mercy. By having a perfect marriage. We are experiencing God's mercy. By living in our very imperfect marriage. And. If we experience failures, my family has experienced. Perhaps your family has experienced as well. What we discover is that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Broken relationships are not unforgivable sins. I've actually known people who, through the most painful experience of divorce, they actually found God's grace in a new and deeper way than they'd ever experienced it before. That God actually brought out of this thing, which He is not. He doesn't, that's not part of his plan, but out of it, as only he can do in the lives of people I personally know, he brought miraculous healing and new life and new hope for often both parties. I've seen it myself and I've got family members whom I love who through that experience actually grew in knowing God's grace and mercy. And I think that is the kind of thing Jesus is pointing us towards when he talks about being mournful and being spiritually poor and knowing how much we need God. God will use our life experiences to help us know how much we need him. And in love, in Christ, he is always, always, always there for us. Well, I'm going to be praying for all of our married couples, all of our soon-to-be-married couples, all of those of you who are thinking about marriage. I'm going to be praying that God will help us to encourage one another, to build up marriages that reflect what God intended for us in Christ. And I'm going to be praying for God's grace in Christ to be working in us, to be setting us free from that spirit of adultery, that spirit of sexual immorality, that spirit of lustfulness, which pervades our culture, set us free from those things and help us all to grow more and more in the likeness of Jesus.